Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. There's a couple spots here if anybody wants to move up. Lots of them. There's a spot right here. This is good real estate right here. You keep me company. That's lonely up there. If you take up their shoes, you might be more comfortable. Good evening. So the topic that we're going to explore tonight is the psychology of pain. And I thought one of the ways that we could explore it together would be to use as a foundation or as a path or as a guide one of the lesser known teachings of the Buddha. Um, but in my opinion, one of the most important in terms of uh, working with some of the difficult mental and physical states that seem to arise in this life of ours. And um, the teaching that the Buddha gives that I'm going to be referring to is called the Two Darts. And I thought the best way of starting to speak tonight would just be to read a small portion of this teaching, and then we can go from there. And as I'm talking for the next little while, if there's anything that comes to mind that you want to say, you feel free to interrupt me. Just stick your hand up, or if you don't want to stick your hand up, just yell it out from back there somewhere. So this comes from um, some of the earliest recorded teachings of the Buddha in the Pali Canon. And I'll just... Um, mention the beginning of this teaching, and then we'll break it up into little pieces. So it starts as follows. When an untaught worldling is touched by a painful bodily feeling, she worries and grieves. She laments, beats her breast, weeps, and is distraught. She thus experiences two kinds of feelings, a bodily one and a mental one. It's as if a person were pierced by a dart and following the first piercing is hit by a second dart. So that person will experience feeling caused by two darts. It is similar when an untaught worldling, when touched by a painful bodily feeling, 
She worries and grieves, she laments, beats her breast, weeps and is distraught. So she experiences two kinds of feeling, a bodily one and a mental one. Did you catch that? Yeah. So what the Buddha is saying here is that one experiences sensation in the body as feeling. The way you know that there is sensation occurring in the body is that you can feel that there's sensation occurring in the body. And in Buddhist psychology, there are three different kinds of feelings you can have based on the experience of sensation in the body. The first kind of feeling is a positive one. Is anybody familiar with those? I hope so. A few. Uh, The second kind of feeling is a neutral one. And the third kind of feeling is a negative one. And the way I like to think about these three feelings is like three buckets. And whenever you have a sensation in the body, our experience of feeling that sensation usually falls into one of these three buckets. And for those of you that have a meditation practice, it's nice to use these three buckets as an image to work with sometimes during meditation practice when there's strong physical feeling. Because you can start to notice how feeling keeps moving between these three buckets. And it helps us see just how impermanent feeling is. Feeling is changing all of the time. And so the Buddha is saying the first way we know that there is sensation in the body is feeling. And he calls that the first dart, being hit by the first dart. And there is no way out of that feeling. And in fact, I would say that a lot of people sometimes are called to meditation practice because sometimes they think it's actually going to take them out of feeling. People who have strong feeling like pain sometimes idealize meditation practice at first, thinking that maybe this is going to keep all the pain away. This is going to keep all the feeling at bay. But what we know about meditation practice is that actually sensitizes one so that our spectrum of feeling actually increases, so that we can feel more and more and more. And what we often come to see is that earlier, we were actually living in a very small, uh, frosted-in, encapsulated spectrum, um, where there were certain feelings we would allow ourselves to feel and certain feelings we wouldn't allow ourselves to feel, and so that our spectrum of feeling is quite psychological. It's, it's a mental construct. As opposed to um, being more flexible perceptually so that we can actually feel a greater range of sensation. So the Buddha here is not talking about getting out of feeling. And it's interesting that he's saying that this practice actually begins in the body. Yeah. And it begins in the body by feeling sensation. <coughs> a lot of people who experience pain especially people who experience chronic pain or terminal pain, especially when it's acute, are usually trying so hard to get out of their pain. And in all kinds of ways, they're trying to escape the pain. And then when you try escaping the pain, because there's negative feeling, you set up in the mind, body, and nervous system a pattern that then creates a feedback loop. So the more you try and get out of the pain, the more the pain tends to increase because the nervous system gets wired in such a way where we can't actually stay present with the pain as it is. We have to do something with the pain. Has anybody ever experienced this before? 
What's important here is that we're not talking just about uh, pain as physical sensation in the way we tend to use that word in English. That in Buddhist psychology, anything that comes in through the senses and the mind is considered sensation. That means anything that you can perceive is considered sensation that gives rise to feeling. So this mean, this could include emotional pain, and actually sometimes you look into emotional pain and it's actually physical. You know, a lot of times what we call mental pain is actually quite physical. So any kind of pain, whether it's chronic, not chronic, emotional, physical, and so on. And what the Buddha is saying here is that there is a distinction, it seems, between the first art, the ability to experience the physical sensation of pain, and the second art, which is trying to get out of the pain, trying to escape the pain. And there are all kinds of ways that we try and escape the pain, and we're going to talk about that. But the point is that in the difference between the two darts, the Buddha is not just making a distinction between feeling the physical sensation and what we do with that physical sensation. He's also making a distinction here between pain and suffering. He's saying that pain is inevitable. Because we're in bodies, our bodies are aging. Does anybody notice this? <laughs> and you're going to die. <laughs> and everybody that you know is going to die. And everybody that they know is going to die. And every relationship in this room and every object in this room, this room itself, and all the perceptual apparatus that we call the sense organs and mind are all aging and dying. And because of that impermanence, we start to see that everything that you can perceive and the sense organs themselves are all changing. There's nothing you, we can really hold on to. And the mind doesn't know what to do with us. So the mind tries to find all kinds of ways to create a feeling of permanence. Yeah. And one of the ways it does this is by avoiding some of the truths that come with the inevitability of aging, which is death. But for most people, before they die, they experience illness and they experience pain. Some people get hit by a bus and it's all over really fast. But for most people, we experience a certain amount of pain in our lifetime. And because we're people in bodies, and because our bodies are aging and are probably going to become ill, we are going to experience a certain amount of pain. So one of the things to me that's very compelling about the distinction between the first and second dart is that it's not idealistic. It's quite realistic. And it's starting with the realistic truth that because we're in a body, we're going to experience pain. There's no way out of the pain. We know this from people who are in chronic pain that for the most part, most of the drugs don't work. We try and take all kinds of medication to get out of pain. And recent statistics show that with pain medication, it has a 30% success rate across the board. We could go further and analyze how that success is determined, but even before we do that, 30% is pretty low. That's not a great margin. 
plus all of these side effects. And there is no such thing as a side effect. A side effect is an effect. It's not a side effect. It's just an additional effect. But pharmaceutical companies use the language of side effect to help market whatever they're selling. The point is, sometimes we're so quick to try and get out of the pain. And this is not in any way proposing a kind of anti-medication or anti-pharmaceutical stance. It's just saying that we're often skipping a step, which is A, we're so quick to get out of pain, and B, in trying to get out of pain quickly, we miss the distinction between pain and suffering. And for most people who are in a lot of pain, it's really not just the pain that they're trying to work with. It's the suffering. It's the unsatisfaction, the stress, the distress, the discontent, the burden that comes along with trying to get out of pain. And that burden is what the Buddha is calling the second dart, which I think is a lovely image to describe the way that we're hit by two things, the first dart and the second dart, but the second dart is of your own creation. The second dart is not built into the first dart. Does this make sense? In other words, suffering is not built into pain. Suffering is additional. It's an add-on to the experience. And this is one of the hard parts to get about one of the key teachings in Buddhism, which is that dukkha, or suffering, is self-created. It's self-generated. Usually we think the precipitating cause of our suffering is somebody else, or something outside of us. But that's the first dart. And the first dart is often inevitable. We're all in relationship. Somebody's going to hurt your feelings. Something's going to cause you pain. A mosquito's going to bite you. A tsunami is going to come. Things that are completely out of your control are going to occur and cause pain. But whether there's suffering or not, that's up to you. It's an interesting way of thinking about suffering. Are there any questions so far or comments? Suffering? Pain? I'll keep going. I'll let the Buddha keep going. Let's see if I remember this here. Having been touched by the painful feeling, he resists and resents it. Then in him who so resists and resents that painful feeling, an underlying tendency of resistance against that painful feeling comes to underlie his mind. Under the impact of that painful feeling, he then proceeds to enjoy sensual happiness. And why does he do so? An untaught worldling, O monks, does not know of any other escape from painful feeling except the pursuit of sensual happiness. So, in the movement from the first dart of actually experiencing pain toward the second dart, the Buddha is saying that movement towards reaction to pain is a movement to find some kind of sensual gratification. So in the feeling of pain, our first reaction to pain is aversion to feeling, 
Why is there aversion to feeling? Because there's this built-in mechanism to react to pain by seeking an object of pleasure, sensual pleasure. You start to feel the pain of loneliness, and you go for romantic love. You start to feel the pain of boredom, and you go for food. You start to feel the pain of um, impermanence, and you go for capitalism. Whatever it is, there's always some way we try and find some kind of material or sensual gratification to deal with pain. And this, in not so many words, is a model of addiction. Right? Addiction is the loop that's created by trying to find some kind of gratifying experience that will get rid of the pain. But if the pain is inevitable, then we're working with the wrong part of the equation. Does this make sense? <coughs> Let me read you a couple of statistics. In 2005, in the United States, there were 50 million Americans with chronic pain caused by disease or accident that were on medication for the pain. 50 million. An additional 25 million experienced, this is an additional 25 million, experienced acute pain resulting from surgery. So we're at 75 million people on medication for pain. Two-thirds of those people in pain at the time of this um, survey were living with pain for between five and nine years. And 98% of them were on medication for between five and nine years. The most common types of pain were in order arthritis, lower back, bone, joint, muscle, and fibromyalgia. In 2003, 36 million Americans missed more than eight days of work due to pain, and 83 million indicated that pain affected their participation in family activities. Here are the Canadian statistics. One in ten people is likely to have a disabling anxiety at some stage in their life that they will describe in the language of emotional pain. One in ten people will experience emotional pain, or will experience anxiety, rather, that they call emotional pain. It's interesting. Um, by the year 2020, clinical depression will be second only to chronic heart disease as the international health burden. This is measured by the cause of death, disability, incapacity to work, and the medical resources it uses. Here's another interesting Canadian statistics. Between 1990 and 2000, the prescription for anti-pain medication increased by 350% in 10 years. 
And as I described earlier, in that same study, they described how antidepressants and anti-pain medication has a 30% success rate across the board. And if that doesn't disturb you, (laughs) in that 350% increase in the UK, 87% of that increase occurred within preschool-aged children. So we get a sense of how our culture has a very limited capacity to be patient with the experience of feeling pain. We're trying to find a way out of it. And as I've contemplated the two darts, it's obvious, especially from a psychological perspective, that we are a culture with individuals who experience pain and don't have any support in knowing how to work with their pain without doing anything other than seeking sensual gratification. Our culture supports sensual gratification. And the more I contemplate this, the more I start to see that the symptoms of an individual person in pain are all the symptoms we see in our culture that are most rewarded in our culture or head as the... or described as the most prominent activities of our culture, namely seeking sensual gratification. Because we are a culture in pain, and we don't actually see the difference between pain and suffering. So we keep working trying to get rid of the pain with sensual gratification, and the discontent increases. One more statistic. This comes from a survey that was done in uh, just last year where 7,000 shoppers across North America were stopped and asked what they were shopping for. (laughs) (laughs) And this is the statistic they came up with. Percentage of shoppers surveyed across the country, these two countries, Canada and the United States, who were shopping for a specific item, only 25%. So only a quarter of people who were shopping and stopped knew what they were shopping for. And I think that this is a alarming statistic because it really brings home this way that we try and get out of ourselves in whatever way we can to get out of this experience of pain. Are we clear about the distinction between the first and second dart? Is this making some sense? And how about the relationship between the individual and collective interpretation of this teaching? That we can see both individually and institutionally and culturally this distinction between the two darts. The ability to stay with our experience in the present moment as it is and the tendency to try and get out of our experience A, by seeking sensual pleasure and then B, by unconsciously creating a feedback loop where every time we try and get out of our experience, we set up in the mind and body the tendency to repeat that same pattern again. Over and over. Freud called this repetition compulsion. Yeah, That unconsciously, when a pattern is repeating itself, it has a kind of compulsiveness to it 
which I would translate as momentum. Karma is like momentum, right? That when we have an addictive pattern of trying to get out of pain using sensual gratification, that becomes an addiction quickly because it's unsatisfying. You see, if it was satisfying, you'd be done. <laughs> you know, If buying your leather interior for your car was actually satisfying, if buying the next pair of silk underwear or your next stainless steel fridge or whatever your buying was actually satisfying, then you'd be done. You'd have some contentment. But it doesn't work that way. Any thoughts or questions yet? I was just hearing an irony in that because um, sometimes I hear people but in hearing the repetition compulsion would defeat that belief, there is this satisfaction with that either. So anyway, I'm just So how do you escape is what you're saying? Yeah. What to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you ever tried to escape from your life? Oh yes, yes. It didn't work. (laughs) (laughs) Wherever you go, there you are. Yeah. Yeah. It works as well as trying to change people. (laughs) And um, this is the point. Is the Buddha saying the sensual gratification is the escape? But this is happening like that. So quick and so unconsciously. That we don't even see it. And what I'm trying to point out here, which is sort of my interpretation of this translation is that we're also living in a culture which totally supports this way of relating not only to pain but most of what happens in the present moment yeah because to go the other way around would put us in relationship and we don't want to be in relationship with pain we want to get rid of it as fast as possible. Yeah. Michael, how do you begin to decalibrate yourself? Well, so far here, the Buddha hasn't said that. The first thing he's trying to do is just describe the karmic pattern. By karma, we mean when there's an action, it has an effect. What's the action? What's the effect? We see that when there is reaction to the experience of pain, the effect is that A, we try and seek an escape route that doesn't work, and B, the not working escape route becomes a pattern in the mind, so that the mind is then going to do that again, even though it didn't work. (coughs) Yeah, And this is really interesting, because we all have certain basic anxieties or fears neuroses or addictions where it's so clear that the strategy doesn't work but we keep repeating them over and over again and we do this because it's known you see even a defensive strategy that causes more and more suffering is seen to cause more and more suffering because it's habitual it's known And because it's known, it's comfortable, Mm -hmm. even if it's uncomfortable. 
And that's that's all the Buddha's covered so far. He hasn't talked about how to work with this yet. And you could say because he's trying to hit home an important point here, which is that because we don't even see that happening. So all he's saying, can you actually see the distinction between the two darts? Can you see in a moment of your experience how there's what's arising and there's your tendency to get out of it? And that's all he's bringing into focus right now, which is huge. And we know this about the psychology of addiction, which is that, you know, in the 12-step program even, the first half of the program is just recognizing the pattern. It's hard to catch a pattern, because usually anything that's chronic is also unconscious. You repeat something over and over enough time that you know your addiction inside out, but you've totally forgotten what you're escaping from. Yeah. So it's like you know your pattern of searching out lover after lover after lover to get rid of some kind of loneliness, and after a while, all you know is the addiction to love, love, romantic, whatever kind of, whatever you call that. Um, and after a while, you know the addiction inside out, but you've totally forgotten the first dart. Right? You know the second dart, but you don't even know what the first dart was anymore because the addiction is keeping you so far away from the feeling. But one of the things we know about feeling is that it doesn't go away. It's, it's going to create a symptom to make you pay attention to turn around and go back to the first dart, first feeling. Did you have uh, your hand up? Yes, I did. A little bit of a devil. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, um, from a harm reduction conference I went to, um, the addiction cycle, whether it be with substances or just just behaviors mm-hmm. that are, are, like you say, trying to trying to get, trying to stop the pain. That aren't going to. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about how those behaviors, and we were mainly talking about the more serious substance abuse behaviors, came about, um, we had to respect why they were in place and that they were actually serving a function mm-hmm. and that they actually were compared with not having those behaviors in place, mm-hmm. the people were suffering less. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so the problem is when you take those behaviors away, mm-hmm. if there's not something else strongly in place to support those, well, all of us, those people, all of us, mm-hmm. to support us when we take away, because I, I think those behaviors are alleviating the pain at least a little bit. Mm-hmm. Or avoiding the pain. Avoiding the pain. It is avoiding, but, but it's just, it's hard. It, it seems a little, as I say, this is being a devil's advocate, yeah. it seems a little disrespectful to yeah. think that all of, that all of humanity is sort of set up to, to naturally tend to be this way, mm-hmm. and that it doesn't serve at least a little bit of a function. There must be some reason. And I, I think that there's a better way. Mm-hmm. But but I also think perhaps it, it's wise perhaps to say that you can't just say, okay, drop that. Mm-hmm. It's not helping. And 
with, without having a lot of work before mm -hmm. to have something in place to say, okay, now you're going to have another alternative to dealing with sure. pain. Yeah. You know. Carl Jung has a wonderful line where he says, a doctor should never take out a patient's neuroses like a dentist extracts a bad tooth, or you deprive the patient of their zest and meaning in life. You pull someone's neurosis out too fast, and you've robbed them of their zest in life. Might be overstating the point a little bit, but the point is well taken. I don't think it's being devil's advocate, because I think it's still saying the same thing, which is that, um, yes, has to, something has to be in place. The problem is, is that the things that we tend to put in place still maintain the same pattern. We usually replace one addiction with another addiction, and then another addiction and another addiction because I think we don't really get this distinction between the two darts. We're still trying to get rid of the pain. And it seems like we could even take this further, and it's one critique that we might have for a program like the 12-step program, which is that the 12-step program takes you to a place where you finally recognize the pattern, you've given up the pattern, but you've still replaced it with some subtle new pattern, which is the clinging to the story that you are still an addict. And for the Buddha, that's not enough. For the Buddha, that would still be considered the second dart, which is still doing something with that painful experience. For some people in this lifetime, any more than that is not going to happen. But from a from a psychological perspective, we really need to have our theories about how we do work with people who are in pain challenged by this perspective, because this is one of the places where um, the Buddhist approach to psychology and the Western approach to psychology, especially addiction, don't work. They don't jive here. There's a there's a gap. And that gap is really interesting. That gap is interesting because to really start to focus more on working with the suffering than trying to get rid of the pain um, brings the psychological process of addiction uh, back to the forefront rather than pain management. Because most people who experience pain get sent to a doctor for pain, an anesthesiologist, who are the people who work with pain. They help you try and get rid of the pain. That we would say here the Buddha is going after the suffering not so much the pain. And one of the things we know about people who are trying to get out of pain is that when you decrease the suffering, you tend to decrease the pain. When you stop trying to get out of your pain, then you allow the pain to really unfold and pass away. 
And there are people who experience terminal pain where the pain doesn't go away. But all of that reaction and the fried nervous system that comes from trying to get out of our pain all the time starts to decrease until you can actually just be with the pain as pain without needing to turn it into something else. Let's try a little exercise together, shall we? Let's do a very short three or four, five minute guided meditation where if you're distracted, just try and really pay attention to my instructions. And I think we can use this as an opportunity to see the difference between the first and second arc. So let your eyes close softly. If you are an advanced meditation practitioner and you're almost enlightened, just (laughs) pretend you're a beginner again and try and listen to the instruction, even if you know better. So let's begin simply by knowing that breathing is occurring. Just aware that there's inhaling, aware that there's exhaling. Sensitive to the feeling of in-breath and the feeling of the out-breath. Bring awareness to your right hand and just leave the hand alone. Whatever it's doing, just let the hand be doing whatever it's doing. And with the breath in the background, bring awareness to the right hand. Feel right hand without adding anything to it. Breathing and simply feeling that there is right hand without needing to do something with it. Whatever sensation is there whatever feeling occurs anywhere in the body. Keep awareness in right hand without interpretation or story.
Now bring awareness to left hand. Is it possible to feel the left hand without any theory, without any story, just staying with the pure feeling of left hand? If other feelings occur in the body, we note them but just come back to this simple feeling of left hand. Now bring awareness to both hands. Is it possible to feel both hands even without language. Can you feel something without telling a story about it? Now take a deep inhale, smooth, long exhale, and let the eyes open. What did you notice in that little mindfulness experiment? Without editing. What did you notice? Anything? Mm-hmm. The hands felt more like there was a softness and pliability. Yes. And letting go of the definitions of those hands. Right. Yes? I was, I was very excited thinking about that client superior because I only recently began to see I think you touched on really the distinction between the first and second dart, which is the first dart is the feeling, pure feeling. And the second dart, so he said a bodily one and a mental one. The second dart is the mental one. It's the elaboration of the first moment of experience of pure sensation, just feeling that there's hand there. 
And you'll notice, did anybody notice, that it's hard to simply feel feeling without elaborating on it. But you will notice that there are little moments where it's possible. And we're not even dealing with pain. We're just, well, maybe for some of you, but for most of us, I think we're just dealing with hands which are pretty neutral. But the mind then superimposes or elaborates on the sensation. These are my hands. I don't know about you, but hand, and then I heard a sound outside. It was a bus. bus reminded me of getting here and how I had to drive here. It was hard to find parking. And I finally found parking. So, oh, the hands, right. <laughs> Back to the hands. Yeah. Am I the only one who had this? <laughs> no, okay. Yeah. My yeah. hands felt really quiet. Like, I noticed that when I was directing my mind, there was no action there. Yes. So I noticed my foot was uncomfortable, my tailbone. I was yeah. building story and very noisy, yes. very busy. Yeah. Sure. Well, here's something that's really interesting is that one of the things the Buddha is saying is that when you go for the story about your experience, that's actually sensual gratification. Because in Buddhist psychology, one of the senses is the mind. And the mind gratifies itself by telling itself stories about experience. For those of you that are clinicians, one of the best feelings being a clinician is when you make a really good interpretation. You have a really good story. And there's sensual gratification. The problem is that when you get a good interpretation, you've usually missed something. Because it feels so good to get the theory right, because then the person matches the textbook. And in matching the textbook, you lose the person. In other words, when the mind leaves the feeling and starts getting into the conceptual proliferation that occurs after the fact, like a train adding car after car after car after car, you become, you're so far away for the direct contact either with the pain, sensation, or with the other person. And this is the hardest thing for clinicians is to drop your diagnosis, to drop your analysis, to drop your interpretation, because most of the time, somebody who's feeling pain just wants to be met. They just want relationship, because it's incredibly healing. They want to be touched, they want to be heard, they want to be seen, and it's it's an incredible relief for somebody, because when you're totally met, there's no story. You can drop the, the story. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I was doing something um, that that maybe the opposite of that, which is I realized sort of my thing, maybe is that I had my hands up and I just felt a glow and I just felt that sensation and mm-hmm. I don't remember feeling anything mm-hmm. else or having a story, but mm-hmm. for me that was like my, me pulling away and I always mm-hmm. sort of. My mm-hmm. thing is, is I withdraw, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and so um, 
I'm not I'm not fully present. So mm -hmm. it's sort of interesting. Yeah. Because I, I think, okay, what was I thinking besides that? I was just like drifting. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because there's something about dissociation that's gratifying. Yeah. You know? You don't feel anything. Yeah, you don't feel anything. <laughs> and um, so, but you can feel yourself as not present. And that's a fabulous thing to catch, you know? Um, that's why the Buddha is talking about feeling. Feeling in the body keeps you present because your body is always present. Your breath is always present. Mm -hmm. If your breath wasn't present, your body wouldn't be present because you'd be dead. Try it sometime. <laughs> it's really interesting. Okay. Are we still together here? In him who enjoys sensual pleasure, he does not know the facts, the arising and ending of feeling, nor the gratification, the danger of escape that is connected with these feelings. In one who lacks the knowledge, underlying tendency to ignorance as to neutral feelings come to underlie his mind. When he experiences a pleasant feeling, a painful feeling, or a neutral feeling, he feels that one fettered by it. Such a one, O monks, is called an untaught worldling, who is fettered by birth, old age, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. Fettered by suffering. Okay. We could say here that what the Buddha is saying is that Whenever you're telling a story about your experience, not only are you not in the experience, but your story is subject to, because it's been born, to aging and to decay. And I think this touches something that you mentioned, which is that our defense strategies are very, very important. That's what keeps this system alive is that we can develop certain strategies, certain resistances, to get through certain kinds of experiences. The problem is our environment is constantly changing, and we're aging, and we need to also let our defensive mechanisms and our addictive strategies also decay and pass away. But what happens is we tend to hold on to them and grip them because they make us feel real. Mm -hmm. The problem is, in making us feel real, they keep us separated from reality and especially from relationship. Because one of the things that happens in relationship is other people interrupt your habitual patterns of perception and your core beliefs about yourself. But a lot of times, most of our defense strategies screw up relationships because the relationship starts to touch our basic defense mechanisms that were once very helpful, but we're not allowing them to decay. In other words, we have to let our stories about ourselves also age, decay, fall away, 
pass away. Because spiritual practice, psychological transformation, is never a practice of accumulation. It's always a practice of letting go. And the hardest thing to let go of is the second dart. Because the hardest thing to let go of is our stories about ourselves. And most of our stories about ourselves are defensive. They're used to keep us separated from experience. Any story that you tell about your hands in that little meditation practice is keeping you separated at one remove from just staying with direct experience. And that's why practice is so important. To practice meditation in whatever form that is, is so important because our momentum, our habits of conditioning are so strong. That you read a great book, you read Eckhart Tolle, and you go, oh, the power of now, I can be so present. Nowadays, if you put mindfulness in the title of a book, it is a bestseller. <laughs> and you read the book and you say, oh, I'm so present. And then two days later, you're just as neurotic as you were before. <laughs> or some great non-dual teacher will say, oh, just wake up. You don't need to do any practice. Just here it is. And you have a taste of that and you go, oh. And you get what's called little Kensho, little awakening. But we forget that our chronic patterns of addiction, even addiction to stories about ourselves, have so much momentum. And we need practice, we need to learn the skills to interrupt that momentum. In other words, we all have the capacity to wake up so that there is less of the second dart, but because of momentum, we all have exactly the opposite. The desire to shut down, to <coughs> dissociate, and to close off into an encapsulated shell of me, separate and alienated. And then we think that if we feed that separate and alienated me, we're going to find connection, but we actually just find more separation because the work is the other way around. The work is unintegrating those stories of self and without some kind of skill, it's too hard to undo those patterns. And this, we might say, is one of the failures of a century of psychoanalysis, is that we realize that we can tell, we can understand our problems, and we can really tell great stories about our problems, even very elegantly if you have an expensive therapist. But... Just because you understand something, it doesn't mean you know how to let it go. And a lot of people can understand their problems with great elegance and a PhD behind them, but they still can't let go of their experience because there is another skill needed, which is learning how to stay with your experience in the present moment. And that's the key to sticking with the first art, not the second art. And without that peace, all the understanding in the world can actually be toxic because it keeps us thinking that the understanding is going to provide us the clue, the why. If we just knew why, 
But many of you who've ever let go of something know that sometimes you let go of something and you never knew why it was there. So instead we focus on the how. How is this happening? Where is this happening? And we drop the why. Where is this happening in the body? Can I stay with this experience in the body? If we had more time, we'd do a bunch more meditation exercises. I just want to read one thing. So now the Buddha is talking about the well-taught noble disciple. And then I'll wrap up, Theodore. Now, when she is touched by a painful feeling, she will not worry, grieve, or lament. She will not beat her breast and weep, nor will she be distraught. She realizes it's one kind of feeling in experience, a bodily one, but not necessarily a mental one. It's as if she were pierced by a dart, but was then not hit by the second dart. So this person experiences feelings caused by a single dart only. When touched by a painful feeling, there is no suffering. Does this make a little bit of sense? Thank God. Yeah. The Buddha doesn't thank God here. <laughs> That's the next lecture. Um, let's take a break.